We pick it up in verse 18. Look at it with me, if you would. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take with you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us, just like we sang. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. And did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you so much for the beauty of your text. For the depth and magnificence of your word. For the glorious splendor of the way, Lord, that you reveal yourself in it. And we, as your children having accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, your Son, our payment, our Lord, call out to you and ask, Lord, for this to be more than information, and for some of us even perhaps seemingly very familiar information. I pray today, Lord, that our hearts will be open and you will plant your deep and beautiful truths in it. And Lord, that you will, if you will, reprogram us as we would read in Romans 12 to be renewed, Lord, transformed by the renewing of our minds. Lord, you tell us that faith comes by hearing and that your word. So today, Lord, may we have a greater faith, a greater trust in you as we are in your word today. Lord, come upon me in such a way that your word would burst open and come alive and just, bam, flourish in front of us, Lord. And that we would be captivated, every minute captivated in you in it. And Lord, today, please, may we have so much fun in your word. We commit ourselves to you in every moment of this. If there be any who have yet to know you, Lord, to call upon you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior, let today be the day that they would say, today, on this day, I've given my life to Jesus. So... We commit ourselves to you and ask you to have your perfect work in in each of us. In the name of our Lord and Savior and Ransom, Jesus the Christ. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. Let the Bible be the one thing for which you test all things to hold them true or false. We are now in what we might call the Christmas story. Oddly enough, well more than 50% of what we understand the Christmas story to be has come from traditions, from sort of romantic portrayals, and if we're going to be honest, claymation performances that we may be sort of systematic to watch every December. But when you actually get what Scripture says, I mean, there's a kind of two aspects of it. There's sort of the anti-biblical and the extra-biblical. The extra-biblical says the Bible doesn't say it, but it doesn't say against it, and they kind of added it. 
like the little drummer boy. Nowhere in Scripture are you going to find the kid. Uh, you know, a lot of animals running around. There's conceivably reason for that, but it's hard to imagine that you have a lot of animals running around and it was a silent night. I almost, you almost have to choose one or the other, if you're going to be honest. It isn't like all the angels sort of stopped and Joseph looked at Mary and go, wow, that's strange. This is like a silent night. You know, I mean, there's so many of these things that we kind of actually... To be honest, um, just kind of assumed was true because we saw it as a cartoon as a kid. Interestingly enough, you may be aware of the fact that of the four Gospels, only two actually mention Jesus before he's an adult, if you will. And those two, I mean, we could say, well, John does in the sense that there was the beginning of creation. But in his human form, really, the only two where you get any form of Christmas-ish story is in Matthew and in Luke. Now, in both of the cases, they've given us a, uh, a genealogy, Matthew and Luke. Matthew presenting Jesus as king over all, king of kings. Luke presenting Jesus as humankind. So, of course, Luke is going to present that lineage back to Jesus, to all the way down to Adam. And Matthew is going to make sure that you can chase it down to David. Interesting that what we'll kind of have, even in the beginning of that, for what it's worth, is we'll kind of have this sort of text that will take us really, in essence, from uh, really from Jesus, uh, really from Adam to Abraham exclusively in Luke. That's 21 names. We'll see the same, by the way, in Genesis 5. Then we'll have together both Mark, uh, Matthew and Luke both doing Abraham through to, to King David. That's 14 names. And then they'll take separate routes. And the reason is important because Luke will give us the lineage of, of uh, Mary and Matthew will give us the lineage of David. Or, I'm sorry, of uh, Joseph. And that's what we see here. We have just finished that lineage and that takes us again now to verse 18. Now, in that lineage, by the way, we find this guy Joseph. And now we really get in these eight verses kind of almost everything we get about him. Interesting for what it's worth. This particular Joseph, as we see in Scripture, we don't have anywhere in here anything recorded that he's ever said. Are you aware of that? We don't have any sort of script that says, and Joseph said... We really don't even have that here. As a matter of fact, for what it's worth in all of this, we really, he's, you know, this particular Joseph, really, we kind of get this story where it basically he struggles with the fact that he's engaged to a pregnant gal. God intervenes and tells him that really, to be honest, she's really pregnant by God. And then he marries her. That's the end of this text. And then the next text, by the way, in, in Matthew chapter 2, is actually going to be a bunch of wise men showing up. We don't read how many. All we read is that they have three sets of gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But we don't read that there are three of them, and one's named Caspian, and one is actually darker-skinned, and one kind of looks Asian, so we can kind of get that kind of we-are-the-world feel. We don't read any of that in there. All we read are three. You know, all we read is that these wise men show up. Now, understand, Scripture makes clear that if we're going to compare the stories in Matthew and in Luke, and I assume them to be, of course, absolutely true, what you're going to realize is that these wise men don't show up until at least 40 days after Jesus is born. And they don't show up in a barn or in a cave or anything like that. As a matter of fact, what becomes clear when you look at the next chapter is that it says when they came to, and that's Matthew 2.11. Take a look at it with me in your text. If you're in the Bible, that's easy. It says in Matthew 2.11, when they came into the what? The house. Did you guys see that? So that kind of makes things a little bit weird for the whole nativity as we're familiar with it. Because clearly they showed up in a house. How do I know that they came 40 days, at least 40 days after Jesus was born? Because that's all the Luke story. Because in the Gospel of Luke, we read, of course, what happens when you have a boy, which is that you have to present him. You have to circumcise him, give him a name. That happens on the eighth day. And then you have to give an offering, and he's a firstborn son. How many of you here, by the way, are the firstborn from among your family? Raise your hands. I just want to take a look and see. Firstborn. Okay, look around. You all could be thankful if you were actually in Egypt and your dad actually put blood on the doorpost. And what happens, it tells us, is that after a woman gives birth, for seven days she can't be around anyone. And she's released blood, and they want to make sure she's safe. But then another 33 days is given, in essence, of sort of time, sort of, if you will, mom and baby time for a son. By the way, that doubles when it comes to having a daughter. And after 40 days, you actually go into the temple and present your child, your firstborn, and you bring an offering. 
the offering that you bring, by the way, if you have any form of money or any form of collateral whatsoever, is a lamb. Now, if you're really wealthy, you give a cow. But a lamb is what's expected, unless you're really poor. If you're really poor, you give two turtle doves, which, by the way, is normally even offered to you. You don't have to go running around trying to hunt down a couple turtle doves. And what we recognize in the Gospel of Luke is when Jesus is presented on that 40th day, they give two turtle doves. So how do I know that the wise men haven't shown up yet? Well, what did they give them? What's the first gift that they gave them? Gold. Now, I don't know how much gold they gave them, but what's clear is if they gave them gold, they could have afforded a lamb. Interestingly enough, what seems to be clear is, is that they show up at least 40 days later. While they're in a house, good news, they're not going to sort of make home out of a cave or whatever, which, by the way, Scripture doesn't tell us either. But in all of that, interestingly enough, they show up, drop off these gifts, if you will. And wouldn't it seem even stranger, ladies? You've had this baby. It's been now maybe even a couple months. And now someone comes knocking at the door. And there are like these dignitaries with these gifts to give you. And you're like, well, that was a strange thing. And then right after that, perhaps, an angel tells your husband, it's time to get out of town. You need to actually get out of here and go to Egypt. Well, how could they afford to go to Egypt? Oh, maybe perhaps they were funded by a bunch of nice guys from the east. Have you considered that? Now, I'm not trying to take the nick or the splendor out of East, out of, out of Christmas. I'm trying to do the opposite. What I'm trying to do is put things back into a biblical sense. And what you realize is these people are much more human. So the whole thing from Joseph's engagement in marriage, there's some form of marriage to the point where Jesus is not only born but dedicated to where the wise men show up. That whole point is silent in the Gospel of Matthew. You're going to get that exclusively in the Gospel of Luke. It's kind of an interesting thought, isn't it? So really what you get here is really not the Christmas story. What you get is that somewhere it appears as if Mary is basically married before she has Jesus. And then a bunch of guys show up with some gifts at least 40 days after his birth. That's kind of what we get in Matthew. Because to be honest, when if you're presenting Jesus as king... The way that he was born, whether it was cesarean or whether he was foot first or head first or sunny side up, is less important than the fact that he really was born. And what happens once he's presented to the world, or if you will, protected from the world, as they do with most princes. So follow me in this for a moment. So really, if, if you kind of think of it this way, I want to kind of develop this concept of Joseph a little bit, because this is really what we're going to get for him. If you really think about it, again, no script spoken. We have these eight verses, and then everything else is kind of said in passing. Wow, they kind of marveled at these gifts. Who wouldn't? You know? And then after that, you have sort of, if you will, this trip where Jesus is, you know, when he's 12. But mom's the one who freaks out. She's the one who's vocal when she finds Jesus and says, we've been looking for you. Where have you been? And then after that, you read nothing of Joseph other than people saying, isn't this Joe's kid? So follow me on this for a second, because I'm big on following this stuff through Scripture. In the Old Testament, I mean, aside from some sort of some passing moments where you kind of have like in First Chronicles 25 or Ezra 10 or Nehemiah 12, where there's just sort of a name within the lineage, you really only have one Joseph in the Old Testament. And he really, interestingly enough, is not in the direct lineage of the Messiah. As a matter of fact, he is the 11th of 12 boys under the guy Jacob who gets the name changed to Israel. But what you, I don't know if you know this, but other than Moses, he is the guy that is most written about in all of the Torah. Are you familiar with that? As a matter of fact, he gets more press than his father, his grandfather, and his great-grandfather combined. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob get less press than this guy. As a matter of fact, roughly half of the book of Genesis is about Joseph. Did you, are you aware of that? And yet, he's not in the direct lineage of the Messiah. As a matter of fact, there's one other guy that gets a lot of press. The only guy that gets more press than him in the Torah. And who is that? Moses. I mean, from Exodus onward, you're going to get a lot of Mo. You're going to get all kinds. You get Mo, Mo. And interestingly, he's not in the direct line, the lineage of the Messiah either. Well, it's easy when you talk to somebody from a Jewish background about this particular Moses, because what they'll say is, well, he's a type, and they're good with that. So they have a particular phrase, and I would like to teach you. It's only four words. Ready? They're all Hebrew. First word's the word katsat. Can you say katsat? Katsat means little. Today, if you say, oh, do you understand Hebrew? Or, you know, you'd say katsat, a little. I know the word katsat. 
And then there's the word po. Can you say po? Po. Think of it, of course, as like a panda that knows kung fu. Po. Po means here. So the first two words are a little here. Ksat po. Your turn. Ksat po. Did you get that? Now, next word. Meod. That'll be your hardest word here. Meod. It's kind of a little kind of hiccup in there. Meod. And meod means, by the way, lot or more or bigger. For instance, if somebody, if you're going to go offer a coffee, order a coffee somewhere in Israel, if you want a big one, you would say meod. A big one. More. Or, for instance, there are the priests, kohen, and then there's the kohen meod, the high priest, the big priest. That's the idea. And our last word is the word sham. Can you say sham? So, our last phrase is meod sham. You try it. Meod sham. So now here's your whole phrase. Ketzat po meod sham. You try it. Ketzat po meod sham. Try it again. Ketzat po meod sham. You got it. See, now look at that. Ketzat po, a little here. Meod sham, a lot later. And the idea of that is, oh, we get a little bit of it here, but there'll be a lot more later. For instance, you'd look at Hitler, and we would say, knowing the, the Antichrist is coming, he's a little bit of a hint. He's a hint of the big bad guy later. Oh, he was horrible, but he'll look like a candy striper compared to the guy that's going to show up later. And they'll say that about Moses, because it says in Deuteronomy 18 that the Lord will raise up a prophet like Moses. Him you must hear. And they'd say, in other words, they look for someone like Moses. In what way? He was a deliverer, and they look for a prophet that is a deliverer like Moses. And thus, a lot of press is given. So when you actually ask about Joseph, this particular guy that shows up in Genesis 25 and basically takes us out of Genesis, well, what do you say about him? Well, you say the same thing. He is an actual, a beautiful type of Christ in an awful lot of ways. And that kind of makes it fun for me. Because, and, and let me just kind of give you a rough idea. For instance, he's spoken to of in a dream. He is rejected by his family. He's betrayed by his brothers. He's sent to Egypt, persecuted without cause because he's innocent, cast into a pit unjustly. He was raised up by supernatural means. He was brought salvation then as a result to the Gentiles, restored then to his Jewish family, and then brings salvation to the Jews. And I get the idea he was preparing us. Because that same kind of character is so profound that there are rabbis today that actually use this term and say that they believe there might be two messiahs. One that they would call Mashiach ben Joseph and one Mashiach ben David. Because they know he has to come from David. Ben means son. But they also know that this guy's sort of a type. And isn't it cool that God actually already reconciled that? He gave us a Messiah that's the son of David. That's his stepdad. And that's what we see here. And then we have the Messiah, the son of David, who's not only, as Joseph here is of the lineage of David, but so was Mary. So he actually fits completely the entirety of it. So when we look at this particular guy, and what do I know about this guy? Well, let me say this. Of the one Joe in the Old Testament, we actually have four Joes in the New. Now, obviously, none of them are given a tremendous amount of, of attention, but let me just kind of put it this way. There's a rich Joe, there's a no Joe, there's a nice Joe, and then there's this one, dad Joe. The rich Joe. He's mentioned in all four of the Gospels, by the way. Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke, 15, or Luke 23, sorry, and John 19. He's the rich guy that has a, a, well, to be honest, he has a cave to offer a dead Jesus. He actually goes and asks for the body of Jesus and buries him in its brand new tomb. It's his tomb. So we have rich Joseph of Arimathea, who, by the way, is part of the ruling party. That's about basically all we really kind of know about the guy for the most part. We have the Nojo, Joseph Barsavas. Now we know him, by the way, from Acts chapter 1, where if you remember after they're trying to replace Judas Iscariot, and they say, I know we need a 12, they bring two guys up. One guy's name is Joseph Barsavas, and the other's name is Matthias. He's the Nojo because he doesn't get called. I mean, how'd you like to be the guy in Scripture that they, oh, they brought two guys up, and this one didn't make the cut? That's the idea. And that's all we read about him. The nice Joe, by the way, we read, by the way, also in the book of Acts 4.36. And that's Joseph or Joseph Barnabas or Barnabas. He's given the nickname Mr. Encouragement or Son of Encouragement by the disciples. And then there's this guy. 
Now, again, when we come to this guy, and I remind you, Luke focuses on Mary, and, and, and of course, Matthew focuses here on Joseph. That means all of that stuff that focuses around Mary, you're actually going to not find in this text. Which means, by the way, because it focuses on Joe, there's no annunciation to Mary. There's no, as we would call it, the Magnificat, where Mary does this beautiful song as a result of it. There's no her visiting uh, Elizabeth, of course, in that whole situation. And because we have no emphasis on the birthing itself, that whole Quirinius tax decree, the trip to Bethlehem, the, the, by the way, the, uh, the whole full caravansary, or if you will, no room at the inn, the whole birthing, swaddling cloths, the manger, shepherds, circumcising and naming him, presenting him in the temple, Simeon and Anna, all of that is not going to be found in this text. Again, it's all we have are these eight verses now. And look at them with me. Believe it or not, we're getting there now. And we'll learn a handful of things about this guy. Verse 18, it just says, Now the birth of Jesus was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. The first thing we know is he's betrothed Joe. Now, that's kind of important, by the way, because we don't necessarily have this depth of commitment. As a matter of fact, today we just kind of live together. We don't, well, we shouldn't. Uh, but versus getting married. But please understand that your word was the most important thing that you had. It was more important than anything you owned. Your word was your honor, and your honor was everything, because here's the difference. There are two basic kinds of communities in the world. There's the kind of community where everything focuses on the individual, and there's the kind of community where everything focuses on the community. When it focuses on the individual, you have to be driven by guilt, by duty, because really, in the end, you just don't want to fail. But when you're in a community, you actually the issue is actually shame. Because if you could be shamed by your community, you have no place to go. And that's a very different thing. Interesting, because the Hebrews tells us that Jesus died for both our guilt and shame. In Japan, that is very much a community-oriented, you know, if you will. You know, so there is sort of an honor-oriented sort of society there. The Western world is more the opposite. We all focus on the individual. And the reason I say that is, to be honest, in our community... In our society, and the way that we think, if you, if you cheat, lie, and steal, but get ahead, some people will applaud you for it. Because to be honest, the issue is what you get versus how you get it. On the other side, it's the other way around. If you were a man of honor, that was to be respected. If you were a person of your word, that was to be honored. And what we read is that he's betrothed. That's not an easy thing. Now understand... The gal, it's a little bit less of an option than the guy. The guy can choose to be betrothed or not. He's the one who starts the process. So let's sort of put things into perspective. I want to develop it for just a moment. Let's say there's a guy named Blavid. And Blavid finds the heart of a particular gal named Blarena. And we're just kind of hypothetical here. And Blavid knows in his particular community that he can't just sort of go and say, hey, baby, want to go out to the mall sometime? I mean, that's not the way it works. So he has a friend, and his friend is called the Shoshbenin. Shoshbenin, let's just say that Bjorn the Shoshbenin, because what is a good Hebrew name like Bjorn? So Bjorn the Shoshbenin. Now, here's the idea. He's the guy that actually has to go to battle over this. He is what we might call the friend of the bridegroom. And as the friend of the bridegroom, he goes to the father of Blarena, who happens to be named Blan, Bruan. That's a hard word to say. Now, follow me on this for a second. Now, when a daughter is born to a household, they know she's on loan. They know ultimately she will be handed over to another family. That's the assumption. So their goal is to set things up in such a way, to live at such a standard physically, emotionally, and spiritually, so that they could confidently say that this man has to, to meet the level we've established in our household. By the way, we, and you can ask my girls, we have three-stranded cords for each of them to say the standard is what I expect from those that are, I mean, we, we say, look, it's not just about getting a guy, it's about making sure he's, he's worthy to take the cord. It comes from Isaiah, by the way, where it says the cord of government will be on his shoulders. Same thing happens there. So follow me in this. So the Shoshpanin, Bjorn, has to now go to Bluan and say, how much for the girl? My friend would like to 
be married to her. Now, Luan, if he's worth his weight, and he is, by the way, um, would do some investigation. He would check to see if this man's a man who could actually uphold the standard. Now, the idea of it being physical is just that they're not going to be just, you know, they're not going to, like, be squatters somewhere taking over an old natural shoe store or something. Uh, the idea of it emotional is, by the way, we, by the way, I think it's interesting God made this clear, as we prosper better in a state of security. In other words, is he a consistent man? Is he not just a guy that's constantly changing, but someone you can trust? That's the idea of the emotional part. And then the idea of the spiritual part is, is this guy going to uphold the standard we have in our house spiritually? So he does that investigation. But I want you to recognize in all of that, the moment he sent his shoshbanin, he's committed. The only thing left is whether she's going to say yes. Does that make sense, everyone? And the reason I say that is when we look at a Joseph here, I want you to realize it isn't like they woke up one day and he kind of looked at this girl and they were watching a movie and he's like, hey, you, you want to wear this ring? There's nothing like that there. So the shoshbanin then kind of helps close the deal. And he says, well, usually it's one of three things, by the way. One is that he can work. The maximum amount of time to work for a girl, half from the time of Jacob, by the way, is three and a half years. Second is he could restore honor to her family. Let's say there might have been some form of problem, and he could actually help restore the family. If he restores them to honor, he can do that. The third, then, is, and by the way, often he does that through giving some form of gift. And then the third, by the way, then, is buying out their debt. We know that, for instance, from the story in Ruth. Do you realize that Jesus so loved you that he did all three? I mean, think about how long his ministry was. He did the entire full length of the service, bought out your debt, paid your debt, and, by the way, of course, restored your honor. How amazing. Of course, of course, of course he would. Of course he would do that, so at that point, then the day is made. And as the deal is made, now, of course, and what happens is, is that now the shoshpanin, or the friend of the bridegroom, his responsibility, with the agreement of the father or the caretaker of Lorena, as he brings them both together, there's a table in between him with a cup. And the cup is he offers then his protection, his pleasure, his presence, and his provision, and he offers that to her. And if she drinks, they are officially betrothed. She offers one thing, her purity. And the moment they are then officially betrothed, she goes to basically to, and I know this is rough, ladies, for at least a half a year, she goes to the spa. And we get that from the book of Esther, by the way. And they call that a time of beautification, a time of oils, a time where she's surrounded by virgin gals that invest in her interesting virgin gals, not married gals. I think God just knew that if you get the wrong married gals, they'd be like, oh, honey, let me tell you what, marriage is terrible. They don't want that. You kind of want girls that are like, oh, I wish I was the one getting married. I mean, that's, you know, you kind of want that. I think God knows what he's doing. So during that time, I know it's rough for the bride, she goes to a time of beautification, getting ready for the marriage. From the engagement, betrothal, to that point. Now the other side of it, Blavid, he goes and prepares. He actually has to go build. Now, wouldn't it be great if you could actually marry, I don't know, a carpenter? Somebody that actually knew how to build. I think that that's really cool that that's what Jesus would choose, by the way. And he goes and builds a house on his father's estate. Sound familiar? As Jesus would say, for instance, behold, I go and prepare a place for you. He's not just straightening up a place or going and picking out a new couch. He's building a new place. So as he's building this place, his entire time, he's got one trust in regards to that girl, that she'll stay pure. But they're as good as married. And ultimately, when does he go and get her? When the house is done. It's that simple. And when he does, he brings with him a herald. That's a guy. That's not just a guy's name. Like, haha, herald. And he's got a guy that's a trumpeter. And the idea is someone's got to actually call the entire community to attention. Remember, it's a communal environment. And so they blow the trumpet. Everyone kind of goes, what's that for? And then the guy that's the herald says, the wedding of Blavid and Blarena. And he comes riding on a litter. That was the limo of the day. That's the thing on a box on his shoulders. And he takes his girl as they show up. The elders, by the way, come first and they light the house. If he's in a hurry, I would be. And as he gets to the house, I remember, I remember couldn't, I couldn't wait to be married to my wife. And then as he arrives at the house, that cord that the father had, he places it upon Blavid's shoulder and says, I openly, today, by the way, we have that in a marriage ceremony when we say, who gives this bride away? That's kind of the idea of that. We publicly testify we're willing to give our daughter away. 
And then with that, then, he takes that girl and pulls her up into his litter so everyone can see, this is my girl. And they go to the wedding site, which is usually a one-week-long party. At the end of the one-week party, by the way, there is, and it's daunting because it's going to be there the whole time as a tent in the corner, called a chuppah. And I've got to be careful how I say this, but basically, at the end of the week, now listen, once they've started that ceremony, they are now, she's gone from being a betrothed to being a betrothed wife. He's going to go betrothed, betrothed wife, wife. He's going to go from betrothed, betrothed husband, to just flat-out husband. And what has to change in between that? What happens in the chuppah? What happens in the chuppah is they, they physically consummate the marriage. Which, by the way, he could prove her purity. And he goes out. I know it sounds horrifying today, but he takes a sheet and says, hey, everybody, she's pure. And they can see that and everyone does the wave. And it's a really a great thing for that community. For us, we'd rather die. I get that. And the reason I say that is, so imagine here's Joseph and he's betrothed to this girl. He's already committed to her. He's publicly testified he's committed to her. And all she has to be is pure. Now, here's my question to you. How does he find out? So, ladies, let me ask you a question. How would you handle it? Would you just wait until you start showing? At first, it's like, mm, boy, that girl's putting on a little bit of weight. What's her parents feeding her? So, sooner you're like, ooh, it's all concentrating in the same area, suspiciously. How long? I mean, sooner or later, do you, are you the kind that just wouldn't come out and tell? Would you be the kind that actually be like, well, you know what, Early, if, I, if I'm going to think about it, I'm just going to kind of wait till, till the, the word gets back to him, and then we'll kind of figure that out. Or are you the kind that you actually, you're kind of, a, you're going to approach him and try to explain to him that God made you pregnant? It doesn't tell us here. Notice it just says, before they came together, she was found with child. It seems like it was a discovery. And now Joseph has a couple choices. I mean, is this the kind of thing where, you know, it's like, now Joseph has a law to keep. But he has options within that law. It tells us, notice in verse 19, Joseph, her husband, being a just man. This guy, and as far as God was concerned, had already married this girl in his heart. And God looks and he says, he is not backing down. But not wanting to make her a public example, he was minded to put her away secretly. Interesting, because God called him just. Did you notice that? The word, by the way, is the word dikaios. It's a building term. It means to be in the right place. We get right angle from these kind of things, like a righteous thing. In other words, Joseph was in the right place with God. And because he was in the right place with God, he exercised mercy and not just justice. But there actually was justice. Just a merciful justice. So hear me in this. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, it says this, by the way, in verse 20 onward, that if a girl is engaged and she is found then to actually be not pure, it says in verse 21, that they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of the city shall stone her with stones, stone her to death with stones, because she has done a disgraceful thing in Israel to play the harlot in her father's house. Therefore you will put away the evil from among you. The young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband, and the man finds her in the city and lies with her. She doesn't cry out, but instead that's actually her preference. Well, you bring them out to the gate of the city, and you stone them to death with stones. The only provision God allowed outside of this was to put her away quietly, to exile her, get her out of the community. And see, understand, Joseph is not breaking the law. He is just choosing the kinder side of it. I mean, on one side of it, he can look and say, you know what, she's hurt me. She has offended this community. She has brought disgrace upon this entire community. And so we're going to make her the poster child for what happens when someone messes with God's law like this. And that can happen. And you know that, by the way, the Romans were really good at that. They were good at making everyone a public example to kind of, the, the idea of it was preventative. And when you get hurt or you focus on yourself, that's the easiest way to, that's the easiest route to go, is you just want to see them, you just want to see them suffer. 
And you're going to make sure everybody knows you're innocent and they're guilty. You ever been there? Wait, that's not what God says here about this guy. And he, by the way, he would have had no recourse by the law. He had the full legal right to do that. But the rough part is that he would have been the one to cast the first stone. That's tradition. But notice again, it says her husband. This guy was married. And because somewhere in that, by the way, can I just say, in the Middle Eastern mindset, you don't fall in love and then get married. You commit, and love is the result of it, interestingly enough. And the nice part about that is you don't wait for a feeling. You commit. You say, I'm committing to this, and God backs it up. Well, with that in mind, notice, by the way, (laughs) Joseph, by the way, wouldn't you be troubled, guys, by this? I mean, let's be honest. I don't care how pure a girl is. It's going to be really hard to assume that somehow this is a God's doing. And so it says in verse 20, But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Interestingly enough, by the way, God knows how to speak your language. And for Joseph, that's a dream. In Matthew 2.13, when God wants to get Joseph to Egypt, he sends an angel to invade his dreams. In Matthew 2.19, when God wants to get him back from Egypt, he sends an angel to invade his dreams. Three different times, this guy is going to have an angel barge into his dreams. Now, we have no record of any sort of angelic dreams before this point. We don't even have a record of what the dream was like. But could you imagine? <clears throat> like, there you are, floating and everything's nice. Or maybe you're in one of those, maybe he's in one of those weird dreams. Like he's got to take a test and he's only there in his underwear. And he's all freaking out, right? Or he's got an audition and he doesn't know what to do. He's totally unprepared or whatever. Or, you know, it's like, oh my goodness, what? And then an angel shows up and goes, <clears throat> excuse me. We interrupt this dream for a very important message. I mean, imagine what dream it could have been. And the funny part about that is, is that I remind you, Joseph was spinning this information as he was falling asleep. And let me warn you, overthinking is under praying. You can get to that point where you're very confident in what the Lord has to say, and then you start thinking about it more and stop praying about it. And amazing how you lose the confidence in what the Lord has made clear to you. So in this particular situation, he's spinning, he's figuring out, and he goes to sleep, and God sends an angel, and an angel steps right into his dream of all things. Now, for some of us, we would have just thought, man, note to self, do not eat pepperoni pizza before you go to sleep. Some of us might get there. But God knew that that was the way to speak to Joseph so that Joseph could get it. Interestingly enough, by the way, Joseph will actually be interrupted in four different nights. Those are just three of them. The last time, by the way, God personally warns him in a dream. We don't even read how in Matthew 2.22 when he says, go to Nazareth instead of back to Bethlehem. So basically, everywhere Joseph goes, he's not going to find out until he takes a nap. And here God says, hey, Joe. Well, wait a minute. Notice what he says first. This angel says to him in verse 20, Joseph. Do you know what that tells us? That God knew his name. He could have just said, hey, freaked out guy. Hey, married to the girl that's not the married to the pregnant girl guy. But he doesn't. He says, hey, I know you. And because I know you, we're going to work this out. But notice the second thing. Son of David, he's not just known Joe. He's also royal Joe. But we've already seen that in the last 17 verses. But notice the command. Do not be afraid. Hey, in a moment like that, would you be afraid? Angry? Betrayal? Bitterness? That seems like fairly to par emotions. But look at this. Wait a minute. Don't be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. You know, I kind of get out of that. Think this through. Is that Joseph still wanted to marry her? But he was afraid. And you get the idea there? He didn't just say, don't be afraid of people and what they're going to say. Don't be afraid of the fact that you are engaged and people are going to talk about it. I mean, all the things he could have said because, hey, look at I know. God's like, I know, Joseph. I know your name and I know your heart. And what I know about your heart is you really want this marriage. You really want this to come through. But 
man, right now you're afraid because you know if you take this girl, and you know how that is, how you play the scenarios in your head. I mean, imagine, guys, what you would play through at that moment. What would my friend say? What would my dad say? I mean, there's some form of nobility and honor in our family. The moment I marry this girl, that's out the window. I mean, imagine, I know that the moment I embrace this, the general community is going to look and go, what did you do? That's the stupidest, headless thing I could think you could do. But if you really grab a hold of this with your heart, and you take this and you open up your heart and you embrace this like you want, inside there's this drive to do that. You want this. You're afraid. Stop. Do you realize what God's telling us today? You see, understand, there's a promise. I mean, Mary was awesome. I mean, she was, she was a girl that found favor with God, and her whole life seemed awesome until God intervened. And the moment God intervened, he did something crazy. He made her pregnant with a promise. And when he made her pregnant with a promise, man, her whole world's going to flip upside down, and she is going to become the, listen, listen, the outcast. Because, to be honest, she just received what God gave her. And now it's the man's turn. He's like, will you receive that? Now let me just say this. I want to warn you, there is a son of God, and he is God's literal biological son. That's the idea of begotten, by the way. Monogenes. Genes like gene or genital. The idea of it is that Jesus is the only one from the father's gene pool. By virtue of that, he's of his species. And that particular son, if you're willing to embrace that son, I want to warn you, you're probably afraid today. And I'm not just talking to those of you who may have never said yes to Jesus. I'm talking to those of you who have. Because you know, you know that if you really embrace that child the way that God wants you to embrace that child, you're going to be an outcast. People are going to point and laugh. People are going to whisper, stupid, imbecile, whatever. You know they're going to do that. And the people, and there are, there are some communities at this moment you think you're liked probably more than you are. And you know that once that actually, once that penny drops, people are going to yank you out and go, get out of stuff. You know, and people that love you, that mean well, are going to say very hurtful things to you. Like, you know, you used to be cool. You used to be cute. You used to be, I'm so disappointed in you. I thought you, I thought I raised you better than this. I thought you had more going on than this. And look at you now. One of those mindless, what are you going to like shave your head? Oh no, it's happening! You know, or whatever. I mean, what are you going to do? Like start just selling flowers or running around with like mustard on your head? What are you going to do next? Do you want a cult? You did, right? Because like real Christians, they don't do anything. They don't really look any different. But you guys, I don't know, you guys are weird. Do you realize this angel speaks to Joseph and he says, look, don't be afraid to take her as your wife. Because this really is my doing. And I look at that and I think, oh, why I do that? Because you know what scripture says twice in the book of Revelation that he's made us kings and priests. We're of royal line now. You've been adopted by the king of kings. And if you've been adopted by the king of kings, welcome to the royal family. And if that's the case, it's time for us to start acting like it. But part of that is, could you imagine trying to hide all of that just to blend in with everybody else when God's actually made you to benefit others by that royalty? God says in the book of Isaiah, look, fear not. I've called you by your name. By my, I'm sorry, I've called you by name. You are mine. I love that. Yeah, he's fearful. But look at verse 21 when we're almost done now. That which is conceived is of the Holy Spirit. She'll bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus. And he shall save his people from their sin. God just gave all three of them their job description. Her job is to bring forth this manifested child of promise. That's her job. Your job is to call him God the Savior. Did you notice that? Your job, I want you to call him God the Savior. His job is to save his people from their sins. And we got all that in a single verse. So this was spoken, by the way, as Matthew interjects, just like Scripture promised 721 years or so prior. 
by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Emmanuel, like we sang, which is translated God with us. So let me lay out a story, and we're almost done now, in Isaiah 7. In Isaiah 7, by the way, there is a king on the throne of the Judah. By this point, there's sort of a civil war. Ten of the northern tribes of Israel now have claimed their territory and their capital is Samaria, and they call themselves Israel. The two southern tribes, Benjamin, by the way, and Judah, have now called themselves Judah. That happened after Solomon, by the way. Solomon's son will be then the leader of the Judean or the southern portion. But his commander of his army, Solomon's commander, was from the tribe of Ephraim. In the northern area, those ten tribes will be led by Ephraim, at least for the first king. And God will use that synonymously often with the leaders up there. Well, here's the problem. By this particular point, the civil war, the northern ten tribes, and by the way, if you were a good Levite, you probably ran down to where Jerusalem was. That's in the south. They gathered, by the way, a guy named Rezin. He's the king of Damascus, the area of Syria. And the two of them have gathered together, and they're about to battle Ahaz, Ahaz, the king of the south. And he's freaking out over it, and for good reason. They're a much larger army. And God says then, look at, look at, look at, look at. Stop being afraid. This northern area, they will exist. This Ephraim, they'll exist. Give them 65 years, they won't even be a nation anymore. Now, at that moment, that would seem impossible. To be honest, that would be like saying, America, give them 65 years, they won't even be a nation anymore. Now, to be honest, today that's a little bit more feasible than it was 10 years ago. But that was the idea when you look at these particular tribes, this community. He says, ask for a sign. You want something? Give me, give, let me give you something amazing, something miraculous to back this up. I've got a message. Now that the message has gone out, let me give you a miracle to back it up. So what do you want? And he says, man, I don't want to test God with anything. And God's like, really? You're going to weary man and try to weary me too? I'll tell you what, I'll give you a sign. Isaiah 7:14, and he says, a virgin will give birth to a child. Now there are some, and please, I don't, I don't, I'm not even going to ask for forgiveness for this, but there are some that sort of wear their, their glasses on the end of their nose to, to prove how smart they are, and they'll say, well, we all know that the Hebrew word is the one for maiden too. The problem is God says, I'm going to give you a miracle. I'm going to give you a sign, something so bizarre, so extraordinary that you'll go, now that's impossible. A young girl giving birth, that's not entirely out of the ordinary, except in cultural, no girls like that don't wind up going in pregnant because they get killed. So understand, when they try to do that, you're trying to remove the wonder of God saying, you need to see how amazing this is. A virgin is going to give birth, and it's just going to prove again that I have totally covered you, and I've not forgotten about you. I love you in your mind. Fast forward 700 years, and now Matthew is looking back and he goes, you know what? This is exactly what God promised. He told us that a baby was going to be born from a girl without a guy. That doesn't make any sense. But that goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Because in Genesis 3, when God said from the seed of the woman, and the Greek word for seed, by the way, when they translate it in the Septuagint, it's the word sperma. That kind of gives you an idea that that's a little weird. That's kind of unscientific. The idea is God says, look at even from Genesis 3, 3,000 plus years before Jesus came, he says, look at a woman's going to do this, and I'll have, the only person that she's going to need for help for that is me. Because, oh, that's impossible for man, but I can do anything, says God. So Matthew looks at this and he says, you know what? God actually promised this. Is that kind of weird to think? And let me say, for 700 years, if we'd have looked at this, we would probably said, God doesn't really mean that. We kind of bend it maybe and make it like allegorical. But what I've learned is God knows exactly what they're saying. He knows how to say it. There's a girl, a virgin's going to give birth. And guess what happened? A virgin gave birth. Just like that. Bada boom. Bada bing. So finally, in verse 24, we have obedient Joe. Joseph being aroused from sleep then. By the way, I find it interesting that it's God with us. If God's going to be with us, what's he going to do? He's going to save his people from their sin. Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He's the obedient Joe. And he took to him his wife and didn't know her. Obviously, that's in a carnal way. Until she had brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus. So, wait a minute. Now I've got this weird problem as we close this up. Whoa. So they did get married then, before Jesus was born. 
he took to her his wife. I mean, somehow we publicly testified she's my wife now. So they, there were no such things as private ceremonies in those days. It wasn't like you went to the justice of the peace. This was a, a community. This was a theocracy. In other words, God was the center of this community or supposed to be. So you didn't do that kind of stuff. There was no, there was no legal and religious. It was all the same. So do you have a public? How big is that wedding? And then what happens? Seven days, you start to think, seventh day, man. On the seventh day, we got to go in that tent. Oh, mm. So for seven days, we celebrate. People probably start to wonder. She's probably showing by now. She had been gone the first three months. Remember, she visited her, her Elizabeth, her relative. So I don't know, somewhere in all of that, they go and sit in the tent and, I don't know, like play Uno or something. I don't know, kind of talk, have a cup of tea. That's oh, cool. It's going to be really weird. Oh, my goodness. How am I going to be the father of God? I mean, how does that work? How, what am I going to teach him, you know? And, and, and then somewhere in all that, he's got to go out and say, everybody, look. Well, y'all know by now. What a weird thing. But Joseph, in the end of it all, embraced it. He took the child. He embraced the child. The question is, will you? By the end of it, this guy makes his way into history because he was married to a girl that was pregnant with the promise of God. And he was personally told, move forward with this, and he did. Now, by the way, they will have at least six more kids together. They just waited until Jesus was born. And I just want you to know that today God has this beautiful plan for you. And this plan is so beautiful, but he wants you to embrace with your heart. I mean, he told us that all the way back in Deuteronomy. He said, well, I want your love, not just your stuff, not just your church attendance, not boxes to tick. I want your heart. Because if I had your heart, do you know what I would put in that? I would put that which transforms the entire world such a way so that you will actually be written into the annals of eternity because of it. So let me ask you as we go to prayer, have you said yes to this child? This God who has come to earth to save his people from their sins. From their sins. Because the wages of sin is death. What we deserve is to be separate from God, but God paid the price on the cross with this Jesus so that we could allow him to pay our bill. And then, three days later, raise again to give us a brand new life now. To put within us a brand new life that will manifest. Now look at This is a really lame example, but forgive me, and then we'll pray. Yesterday, after our baptisms, really, really cool experience, of course. Eight, we saw all eight people go into the water. It was beautiful. I just love watching this and the radiance and the excitement of the people. We traditionally then go to a place that's a sort of a gelato place in, uh, in Brighton. And it tends to always have a couple of adventurous flavors. It's one of the reasons I normally go there. So, so I think it was strawberry, pepper, and basil or something like that. Basil, if you will. Yeah, it's actually quite lovely. So we traditionally go there. And so, uh, so I'm there, and I'm getting stuff for the kids and stuff and really having a great time. And one of the gals from our fellowship is behind us, and she kind of makes her way into the line. And so I tell the person at the counter, hey, by the way, don't just pay for us. Pay for this gal as well. She's like, okay, cool, great, that's awesome. You know, I mean, I, mean, I probably look like a creep, right? I'm like, hey, she doesn't know I'm a pastor. Anyways, but... But anyways, I'm like, okay, so go ahead. So then that's cool. So the price has been paid for all of my kids, you know, cones and so forth, and for this gal's as well. And then I see her come out with her cone afterwards. And I'm like, did they charge you for this? She goes, well, not at first, but I paid them anyways. And I thought, why would you do that? You know? I'm like, it was already paid. It was already paid. Why would you want to pay it? And she's like, oh, uh uh-oh. And so I'm like, back in there, give me another cone, right? And, And the point of it is it seems so silly to pay for something that's already been paid for, right? Well, Jesus has paid the greatest price. Why would you want to pay for what he already paid for? He's paid for you. He's paid for your guilt. He's paid for your shame. Why would you want to say, you know, the only reason why this person would be like, no, I wanted to pay would be like, I hate you. I'm going to pay for my own comb. Which, praise God, was not the point. And the reason I say this, why would we want to do that with God? It's like, I've already paid the price Why would you want to say no to that? If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, might I say today, may we accept him with our heart. I mean, with everything. 
to say, you know what? I want to be completely yours, completely yours in a love relationship, not just the servant thing. But if you haven't, I want to give you the choice to say yes. If you're not sure, you could be sure you could say yes today. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you so much for this beautiful text. I thank you for the way you go before us. I thank you for Joseph's example. I thank you for the way, Lord, that Joseph is, is seen as a guy who really, really has to make one choice, and that choice is what he's going to do with this gal who he clearly seems to love and is committed to. And I thank you that he makes the choice of obedience to you. And as a result of that is written in the book that we all get to read now and see his great choice. And I can't imagine what it would be like to think that my son is going to be in every way infinite and I am somehow going to raise him. But thank you for the task that you put before Joseph. I thank you for his commitment to Mary, and I thank you for Mary's obedience as well. And I pray right now, Lord, for every person here who has made a claim to you, that today in this room, you would take us beyond that intellectual ascription that we've sort of made a prayer or done something that feels like we've kind of covered our bases. But Lord, we recognize when it comes to a love relationship, every area of our life changes. And we can't just make up our own rules. But Lord, I pray today for every one of us that we would open our heart and embrace your gift with all that we are to allow you to transform us in every way. I pray for those of us, Lord, who may have been injured, offended, or hurt by someone else. I pray, Lord, that they would be just and righteous in their actions. And you've told us what is good and what you require of us. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you, God. May we do so. May we be people today who are willing to recognize that the debt you've forgiven us should grant perspective to any small debt, whatever it be, that we feel owed. Do not let us be like this servant who was forgiven so much but would turn and exact the full measure of the law on a person that owes them infinitely less. But may we not in any way allow your word to suffer because we're just trying to be nice. We recognize that embracing Jesus, that there will be talk. There will be those who will look with a furrowed brow. There will be those who really have it in and now will declare themselves even our enemies. There will be members of our own family that will look and think we've lost our mind. But that is no reason to say no. And here, within the sound of this voice, if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, if you've never said yes to his offer, I'd like to give you that opportunity now as we close. I'm going to pray a prayer, and I ask you to listen. And if you agree, I want you to say at the end of it, Amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. I want that prayer to be my prayer. Let that be so in my life. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I'm a sinner like every other human being. I've done wrong, thought wrong, felt wrong. And because of that, Punishment is owed me. 
But I believe because you love me so much, you sent Jesus to pay that price so that my sin could be fully punished upon him and that I could be made right in your eyes. And just like Scripture promised, he died on a cross, choosing to do so, so that I could have my debt paid. Just like Scripture promised, after being buried on the third day, he rose again, so that I could have a brand new life. One with an intimate, real, vibrant relationship with you. So, I say yes. Yes to Jesus. And the gift you want to give me with him. I'm yours now. May I embrace you with my whole heart. And love you the way that you deserve to be loved. I confess Jesus is my Lord and Savior. In his name I pray. If you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.